Well, Dr. Green, thank you so much for taking time today and talking about toxic family relationships. And so my first question is this, in your experience as a licensed psychologist, have you seen that family relationships are oftentimes have the most volatility to them? Yes, family relationships are the most potent in our life and they can be the most toxic. For example, we find most homicides involve family members um, others that are very, very close, uh, a child, uh, missing children, most often we find it's a family member. Why do you think those relationships are often the most volatile? Well, family relationships are unlike any other relationship. Uh, said we can choose our friends, we don't choose our families. And it prompts us to seek their, them for comfort or for encouragement or support. And what we often find is that there's a disappointment. The, family members aren't who we hoped they would be, that they turn out to be sort of people like us, only a generation older often. And that leaves us needing to, for us to grow up. Why is it so important that somebody deals with those internal conflicts related to a toxic family relationship? The patterns of our family are ingrained in us and we continue with those, whether or not those, fam those patterns are based in truth or love, they're all we know initially. As we move into adulthood, we're called to separate our identities from being that child in the family of origin. When we don't do that, we tend to respond in a childlike way, repeating the patterns over and over again. And what we find often is that the rest of the world isn't organized the way our family was organized, and it doesn't work so well. What advice would you give to somebody who's potentially in a toxic family relationship right now? Sometimes it's even hard to know if I'm in a toxic uh, family relationship because I've got one family and this is normal to me. We often can't see that when we're on the inside. It's important that we talk to somebody outside of the family, looking for someone who's spiritually mature, who is uh, not invested in the relationships with the family members, but can listen to us and knows us. This might be a pastor, a counselor, somebody spiritually mature in uh, the body of Christ, looking for someone that we can share with. We want to discern or sort out who's responsible for what, to release what's not my responsibility, to let go of that, to allow others to be responsible for their part. And we need to sort that out in order to uh, live as we're designed to. Well, thank you, Dr. Green, for your time today and your insight into helping us deal with these potentially toxic family relationships. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be with you. Check, check, there I am. Good morning, welcome to Life Church. I'm Aaron Cole, the senior pastor. 
So you guys are about to blame the sound people, and it wasn't them at all. I've got to turn it on in order for it to work. So anyhow, it's great to see you today. It's good to be here. Hopefully you're having a great week. And uh, I'm so glad you're here for the beginning of this series uh, as we began to kind of unpack this toxic relationship series that we're, we're beginning today. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be on the screen. But I'm going to walk through about 12, 10 to 12 tr- chapters of Scripture uh, and just kind of give you a narrative, a story in Scripture that uh, really relates this subject about toxic family. So we're talking about toxic relationships as it, as it, as it deals with family. You know, I was thinking as I was working on this message that I've taken a lot of classes and been involved in a lot of education in my life thus far. So uh, first six years, uh, Sunny Mead Elementary, the Sunny Mead Bulldogs, don't hate, congratulate. Then went on to junior high, three years of junior high, seventh, eighth, ninth grade as a Kimmins Raider. And then uh, to uh, Southside High School and then went, got my undergrad at a small private college in South. West Missouri, uh, and then went on to get my master's degree, and now currently getting my doctorate. And of the hundreds of classes that I've taken, and hours that I have spent, I have never taken a class on relationships. It's kind of interesting to me. Never. And I would think, you know, relationships would be a class that we should all take. That's much more valuable than Algebra 1. Anybody? Amen? (laughs) Maybe there's an engineer that goes, oh, I don't know about that. But the rest of us would all agree that, you know. And, and it's interesting to me that we don't really talk about this. We don't really think. We think about it, but we don't talk about it. We don't educate on this. And there's behavioral sciences, and there are people that they get degrees in counseling. And we've already established I'm not one of those people. My wife laughed at me when I talked about getting a counseling degree. Um, it's just uh, there are people that, you know, there are psychologists and sociologists and so forth and so on. But that's just one spectrum of society. But for the most of us, we don't. So we go get married. And I, I'm a pastor. I'm a, a minister. So there is no prerequisite for marriage, getting a marriage license in the state of Wisconsin. You just simply go and you file. And a few days later, you get it. And, um, and so you don't have to have an education. You don't have to take a course. You don't have to... And, and so what people do is they go get married and they do what their parents did and then the parents before them. It's just generation after generation. You just kind of live and do life. Same way with, with parenting. You don't just, you know, these kids don't come into the world like with a, a manual, you know. And Tammy and I joke a lot of times because when I was a youth pastor in my 20s, I could tell you how to parent your kids. Because all I had was a, an 80-pound Labrador retriever, right? That's it. It was Tammy and I, no kids. But, but in, as a 44-year-old man with an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old, I don't know anything about parenting. I know nothing. <laughs> don't even ask me. And um, it's just funny because, again, we don't take courses. We don't, but yet, we're dealing with human lives here. And we expect the school to do that and the educational system to do that, but we don't necessarily do that. And and what happens is, is that most of the relationships and most of how we conduct ourselves and what we know about relationships all begins with our family. So if you're raised in a relatively functional family, then you're probably going to be a relatively functional individual. At least your percentage of your chances of being functional are going to be higher. If you're raised in a jacked up, messed up, hot mess of a family, it's probably going to be pretty much the same thing unless you do something that changes that trend. Same way with marriage. The same way with relationships, it just is. Have you ever noticed why there are people in your world that are just weird? This is just us talking, right? 
It's, they're just, they're, people have issues. And nobody ever stops to go, why is this happening? What's going on? What's happening with me? What's happening with me and my brother or me and my sister or, or us as siblings? What's happening between the relationship between me and my parents or, or, or as a parent to a child? What's happening in, in a marital relationship? And, and sometimes we myopically will look at certain parts of these micro relationships and the whole macro of the family. But the reality is we all have a crazy, crazy Uncle Eddie. And we all have a, have a crazy you know, uh, Jim Bob of a cousin. And, and, and you don't have Jim Bobs, but I do where I'm from. And so... We, you know, don't you know, Dere. So I'm telling you, rednecks exist north of the Mason-Dixon. Just go to Walmart and West Bend any day of the week, all right? <laughs> or any Walmart as far as that's concerned. So, so we, it's people. It's relationships. And so what I want to do today is I just want to stop for a minute and go, and just go, why is this happening? And how do we learn? And, and, and are we identifying these things? And what do we do about it? Sometimes we know, we just don't know what to do. I grew up in church where they would preach about what you shouldn't do all day long, but nobody ever stood in the pulpit and said, this is how you fix it. So hopefully today I'm going to give you some information. This is a heavy subject matter. I'm going to try to have as much fun with it as I possibly can. So just laugh at the feeble attempts of jokes, right? Because it just makes the time go by faster. Uh, But this is a heavy subject matter. This is not a simple subject matter. And I'm going to oversimplify it for the sake of time today. And I hope you understand that some of what I'm talking about, you may really need to delve deep into. And you may really need to process deep. But much of what we learn and what we know about relationships come from our family. So I'm going to give you an opening statement here. Our family of origin shapes us genetically, behaviorally, and relationally. No matter where you live in the world, your family of origin will shape you genetically, your DNA, behaviorally, how you act, and relationally, how you interact with other people. We find this in Scripture... And I'm going to look at a case study of Isaac and Rebecca. And they're a classic case study. So if you have your Bible, look at 20, Genesis chapter 25, verse number 21. We'll begin reading. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. And the Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebecca became pregnant. The babies jostled from uh, each of, uh, excuse me, the babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said of her, there are two nations in your womb, two peoples within who you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. The, other, the older will, be, will serve the younger, which is opposite of how its natural order should be. When the, when, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was, was like a hairy garment. We'll talk about that in a minute. They named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So we see here we've got Isaac the dad. This is the son of Abraham, right? This is the first. He's, this is the, uh, Abraham is the, is the father of the nation of Israel. Isaac is his son. This is the third generation. Two generations removed from, the, from, from father Abraham of the nation of Israel. Uh, Isaac... And Rebecca, a beautiful story, uh, and, and so they, she conceives of these twins, they give birth, she gives birth, should I say, and Esau is baby number one that comes out. Esau, the Bible says he's red and hairy. He's not beautiful, he's not sweet and lovely and cuddly, he's hairy, like hairy. The word Esau means hairy. Oh, look. 
He's hairy, Jacob. He's hairy, Isaac, right? This is what's going on here. So hairy like back hair hairy. Hairy like he could go to NASCAR and put his favorite Dale Earnhardt number on his back hairy. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to gross you out. I just want you to understand what's going on here. This is not a loving name. This is not like, you know, today we, we give kids names because they rhyme or it has a meaning from our family or whatever. No, 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 no. He's so hairy. Let's name him Esau. So the kid goes to grade school. What's up, Harry? Right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand all the jokes that go with that? Okay. I'm filtering so much right now. If I was a youth pastor, there's so many things I would say. Let me move on. Then the next child comes out as Jacob. Now that sounds like it's normal because we name our sons Jacob. But Jacob is grabbing the heel of his brother Esau. Now the two of these are wrestling in, in, in Rebekah's womb. And so they're fighting with each other. Why is he grabbing his heel? Because he's trying to pull him back so he can get out first. What does the name Jacob mean? It means deceiver. They notice this as soon as he comes into the world. He's doing everything he can to give himself a leg up. He's pulling. He's pushing. There's no such thing as a fair fight. This child, Jacob, came into the world. Happy birthday, dear deceiver. Happy birthday to you. You understand what I'm saying? So the very first test, Isaac and Rebekah kind of flunk. Because according to the Hebrew culture and custom, their names are to be prophetic. Their names were to speak destiny and life over their children and describe their destiny. And Isaac and Rebekah, the best they can come up with is he's hairy and he's a deceiver. Now, we read this and we just think, Esau, that must be some Old Testament name and that kind of thing. And Jacob, that's a good name. Let's name our son Jacob. And there's nothing wrong if your name is Jacob. Please don't misunderstand me at all. I'm just saying that's what the name meant in the Hebrew, and that's why they called him that. This just begins a whole litany of toxicity that begins to fill this family. And I'm going to walk you through this. I'm going to look, I want to look at some of these, family, these toxic family issues that emerge out of this. The first is favoritism. Favoritism. We see this played out. And again, we're going to walk through this passage. But Genesis chapter 25, verse number 27 and 28. The boys grew up. Harry and the deceiver, right? Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. No joke. He didn't have to wear camouflage. No shirt on. He's hairy. He just goes out. <laughs> the Bible says, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. He's a mama's boy. That's what he is. That's all, it's, it's, he's at home. He, he's great with sewing and cooking. And I, this is what he does. I'm just telling you. It's right there in the text. Don't get mad at me. I'm just, I'm just telling you what it says. And Isaac had a taste for a wild game, and he loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This isn't written, the book of Genesis is not written by Isaac. It's not written by uh, uh, Jacob or Esau or Rebekah. It's written by an outsider. Those are declarative statements. No bones about it. Isaac did not necessarily like Jacob because he stayed and lived among the tents. He was mama's boy. He loved Esau. That hairy beast of a man who had that deep baritone voice, right? Who had hair from the top of his head all the way down to his toes. He could walk around with natural camouflage on. He could kill anything with his bare hands. He was incredible with a bow and with an arrow. He, could, he, was, he smelt of old spice. You understand what I'm saying? He was an outdoorsman. This is who he was. That's my boy. But he never said that of Jacob. Jacob's kind of, he lives among the tents. Jacob, 
Rachel, or excuse me, Rebecca was like, Esau is very hairy. He's kind of got a wild outdoor odor that I don't necessarily like on my furniture and my couch. I live in my house, but Jacob is more my son. He's he's more uh, uh, you know he's more of a Renaissance man. He he's he's more of a cultured individual. A little a little uh, you know yeah he's he's not really more for the outdoors. He's more, but he he's my favorite. There there becomes this this natural line between Jacob and between Esau. From the time they're born all the way through, there's, there's unequivocally the mom and the dad, Rebecca and Isaac, are completely split on this. One loves one, one loves the other. One favors one, one favors the other. See, what happens is, is that the issue is, is that the parents are split on this decision. And a house divided against itself cannot stand. And so they, they, they make no bones about it. And favoritism, what it begins to do is it causes relational wounds that, that began to appear in these boys' lives. Because a child needs to be accepted and supported by both mom and dad. A child needs to have that unconditional love that a mom and a dad can give. A young man needs to have the affirmation of his father, and he needs to have the love of his mother. A young woman needs to have the love of her dad and the affirmation of her mother. They need both. It's not an either or, it's a both and. And those of you that may be single parents, that's why I pray for you. And and my hat goes off to you. And I believe that God kind of comes in and makes up the difference in your life. But but, but the reality is, is God intended for it to be a man and a woman woman and a child to be raised because they both need both of those components coming together. There's something. Listen, I live in a house full of women, but there's something that when I come in the house, I'm just a guy. So it's the sound of my voice. It's how it's, 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 it's the, my very presence in that room. There's a certain amount of security. I tell my girls all the time, listen, the guys don't have to be scared of you. They just need to be scared of me. And if they're scared of me, if there's a problem, I'll handle it. Yes, dad. You like that, don't you? Yes, Dad. So let's just keep that going. Yes, Dad. Because it makes life very easy for me, and it makes life much better for them. Young men need to know that they've got a dad that will light them up like a Christmas tree if they get out of line. Because guys get out of line. Amen. I'm looking at some young men down here on the front row. All right. You understand what I'm saying? This is what goes on. So it's this healthy balance. But when there's this favoritism, what happens? There's an absence. There becomes an imbalance. That's what's happening here. What happens is the next thing. It leads to a performance trap. Where a child has to begin to perform for the parent. Perform for attention. Perform for acceptance. And if they feel a less than value or less than, or they feel a favoritism going to a sibling that they don't have, then they try to make it up. In the book, Tired of Trying to Measure Up by Jeff Vondervan, he makes this statement. We all need an environment where our needs are met because of who we are, not because of what we do. That's every one of us. Whether you're 85 or 18, there's something in us that we need to know that this is who I am. My faults, my failures, my weaknesses, my strengths, my successes, my losses, all. And somebody sees me that way and they still love me. The only person that can do that this side of eternity is God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That word so means unconditional. This side of eternity, because we're all flawed and failed humanity, we have good days and bad days. As much as we try, we, don't, we can't give that unconditional love that only the Father can give. 
That's the reason why when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it feels so amazingly awesome. Because for the first time in our life, we were genetically encoded in our very spirit and being to be known and to be fully known and to be accepted. And this side of eternity, that is so hampered. That is so kept in. And, and, and only when we come into the grace and the presence of God do we feel that. But mom and dad, if we're not careful, what we do is that we will love our children for what they do, not for who they are. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against the reward system. I, I don't believe that, that discipline should be punitive. I believe it should be discipline which means I'm trying to help you develop character in your life. Because mom and dad, if you don't develop character in your kid's life, it's not going to get developed. The world's not going to develop character in them. The world's going to crush them is what they're gonna, what's going to do. Or use them. And when it's got what it wants, it's going to spit them out. You are trying to develop discipline in them and character in them so that they don't fall prey to the addictions of the world. Why do people fall, and fall prey to addictions? Because they need something to soothe them. They need something to comfort them. The only thing that can comfort and that can soothe us is who? The Holy Spirit. That's why he's called the comforter. And so when God comes into us and the work of God is sealed by the Holy Spirit according to the Gospel of John, that comfort and that peace that passes all understanding pervades through us. And as long as we live in Jesus and he lives in us according to the Gospel of John, we will have the comfort and the peace that we need. And sometimes as parents, we need to discipline our children in order to help them to understand that and to learn that and understand cause and effect. Nothing wrong with that. Not everybody gets an A. Not everybody gets a blue ribbon. I'm not for that at all. I think that breeds a very unrealistic view of the world. But my love for you as a parent to a child is not based upon your performance. My love for you and acceptance of you as a parent of a child is not based upon your doing what I want you to do. My love for you is based upon the fact that you are my child and that God in his infinite wisdom chose me and entrusted you with me, knowing that in all of my faults and all my failures and all my inadequacies that he chose to use me and your mother in order to raise you in his fear and in his admonition to do what he wants you to do. See, we all want our kids to live up to their God-given potential. But our love cannot be performance-based. It's got to be relationally based. Let me show you this. Because Isaac and Rebekah, they failed this test miserably. Genesis 27, starting in verse number 1. And when Isaac was old and his eyes were weak, he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his favorite older son, and said to him, My son, here I am, he answered. Isaac said, Now that I'm an old man, I don't know the day of my death. So I want you to get your equipment, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the open country to hunt some wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like and bring it to me to eat, so that I may give you my blessing before I die. So for our context today, blessing would be like the family inheritance. It always went to the firstborn. Now Rebekah, look at verse 5, was listening as Isaac spoke to her son Esau. And Esau left for the open country to hunt game and to bring it back. Rebekah said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to you, or to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat it so I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. So now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you to do. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats that I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. And then take it to your father and eat so that he may give you the blessing before he dies. Do you see what's going on here? This favoritism is at such a deal where Rebecca is listening to Isaac's conversation with the older son, with, with, with Esau. And so, again, she's been calling Jacob a, de a deceiver his entire life. 
I wonder where he learned that from. From his mother. So she goes in and says, here's what you're going to do. I know exactly the way to a man's heart is through his stomach, always. I know exactly the way to get your father. I know exactly how he likes his food. Here's what you do. Go get this. I'll prepare it. And as you read the following verses, you'll find out that that's exactly what happens. But see, because remember, Jacob is... He's a mama's boy, so he's not burly like his brother. He's not hairy like his brother. He doesn't have a deep voice like his brother. He doesn't smell like Old Spice like his brother. So his mother, Rebecca, goes in and actually puts animal skins on his forearms. That's how hairy Esau was. Sends him down with Old Spice. Takes him in there with the food. And Isaac can't see, but he goes, your voice doesn't sound like the voice of Esau. So come near that I can smell you and see if you're my son. And he smells like the outdoors. Let me touch your arms and see if you're hairy like Esau. And so he puts his arm out there, and it's an animal skin. That's how hairy Esau is. It cracks me up. And uh, talking about electrolysis. So anyhow, put, and put, touch there, and, and, and he goes, you're my son. And then what happens is, Jacob, with the help of his mother, deceives the father, Isaac, into giving Jacob the blessing that belonged to his brother Esau. Look at verse number 30 of Genesis 27. And after Isaac had finished blessing him, Jacob, Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence when his brother Esau came in from hunting. And then Esau realized what has happened. Go down to verse 34. And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud, bitter cry. This is the first and only time we see this man cry in his entire life. And he says to his father, bless me. Me too, my father. Verse 35. But he said, your brother came deceitfully. No joke, that's his name, Jacob. That means deceiver. And took your blessing. The bottom line is, Jacob fell short of his father's unspoken expectations of hunting. And Esau excelled. And so they created this performance trap that damaged the family and that brought about a crazy dysfunction. That's what happens. All of a sudden, you have this situation where Jacob is doing what his mother wants him to do. And Esau is doing what his father wants him to do. And so Esau loves this about Esau, Jacob loves this about Esau. Excuse me. Isaac loves this about Esau. So Esau goes and lives this way. Rebecca loves this about Jacob, so Jacob goes and lives this way. And these two young boys are like puppets on a string. And they, that's how they've learned how to do life. They've learned how to deceive. They've learned how to placate. They've learned how to dance. When you turn the music on, I'm going to dance. I'm going to do what you've taught me to do. Where did they learn that from? Their mom and their dad. I know this is heavy, but it, this is biblical. And if we're not careful, this is exactly what we do. We, we, because we reproduce in our children who and what we are. See, more of what we do is taught, excuse me, is caught than it is taught. I caught myself the other day. I was pump, filling up a car with gas. And I'm standing there and I see an image uh, out of the corner of my eye. And it looks like my old man. And it's me. The way I'm standing. The way my jaw set. My hair. The cap on my head. The way my, my posture, it's my old man. Why? That's who I made in his image and his likeness. I'm Jerry Cole's son. So as I get older, I, I get a lot like Jerry. And, and my, I get that, as Tammy calls it, that Jerry Cole look that I'm about to take your stinking head off. And, and it's just that look. It's just how my dad was. My dad didn't negotiate very well. It was, he was passive or he was active. There was no in between, right? My point is, that's what's happened here. And it, what it does, it creates dysfunction. That's the last toxicity that you find in a family. 
dysfunction. And too many of us settle for a dysfunctional family. We just learn to live with problems. We learn to adapt. We adapt to the dysfunction. We're actually pretty amazingly adaptive creatures when it comes down to it. We adapt to the dysfunctional family. We adapt to an abusive parent. We adapt to an unfaithful spouse. We learn to live with the pain. And we no longer try to have a family that's thriving, but just a family that's surviving. If I can just get through another holiday, if we can just get through another school year, if we can just get through another summer, if we can just get through another, that's what happens. I want you to look at this in Genesis 27. So in the same chapter we've been in, verse 41 and 43, it talks about the dysfunction of Isaac and Rebekah's family, how it results. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother and Laban and Haran. I'm not promoting this movie, but if you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, well, Michael gets so upset with Fredo, his brother, because Fredo's done something stupid yet again. He looks at Fredo and says, Fredo, you're my brother. And I love you, but you're stupid. And mama loves you. And as long as mama's living, Fredo, you'll live. But when mama dies, you're dead. That's what's happening here. You just thought that, that, that the godfather originated that. No, no, no. Esau's like, the days of my father's mourning. I'm going to mourn for my father and his death. I'm not going to do anything right now. But when I'm done mourning, I'm going to go kill Jacob. And I'll get the birthright. I'll get the blessing. I'll get the inheritance. As long as dad lives, he's okay. The moment dad dies, he's done. Mother, plain favorite yet once again, goes in and says, Jacob, go run. And he runs. He runs. He runs for his life. He runs for 20 years, the Bible says. Rick Diamond in a book called Wrestling with God says, we're a part of a culture that encourages running rather than wrestling. Instead of dealing with the problem and dealing with the issue, you run. You run. Just avoid it. That's why the subject matter is so heavy. And I know it's heavy because I've had conversations with people every single service about, wow, man, that really made me think. I'm talking about people on all types of the spectrum. Because what happens is Jacob just runs away from his problems. And for 20 years, he runs. He goes and gets married. He marries the love of his life. He has a family. He, he starts a business. The business grows so much that he has to move. He has multiple locations, if you would. And everything's going great. And on the outside, it looks great. But on the inside, Jacob's still Jacob. Jacob's still the deceiver. Jacob still knows what he's running from. You, wherever you are, in the words of the great theologian Austin Powers, there you are. It's true. People try to, I'm just going to go to a different city and reinvent myself. The problem is wherever you go, there you are. I'm just going to go into a different marriage. The problem is if you don't leave this marriage right, that even makes sense at all. You'll never be able to go beyond that. I see people do this all the time. I'm just going to change jobs. If you don't leave this job right, you'll never be able to go right into this next job. I'm just going to leave this relationship. If you don't leave this relationship right, you'll never go wrong, right into the next relationship. I'm just, you know what? I don't like Pastor Aaron anymore. I'm going to leave Life Church and I'm going to go to a different church. That's fine. People do it all the time. It's called big church problems. But if you don't leave Life Church right, 
you won't be able to go to the next church correct. Why? Because if you don't have the correct ending, we all have endings in our life. They're all relationships and times and places that come to an end. But if I don't deal with this correctly and I go to the next place, what do I do? I just bring all that stuff with me. And I can have success and I can have family and I can create a life and I can be 20 years removed. But the issue's still there because I never dealt with it. I just ran from it. That's what Jacob does. But at some point, you're going to stop running. At some point, that that you're running from is going to catch up with you. So how do you deal with toxic family relations? First of all, you wrestle with it. You quit running from it and you wrestle with it. You deal with it. Jacob finally stops running and turns to God when he hears 20 years later that his brother Esau is coming to visit him. And he remembers what his mother said 20 years ago, that he's going to avenge your deception, Jacob, by killing you. So what does Jacob do? He does what any good person does. He drops on his knees and he prays. Let's read it right here. Genesis chapter 32, verse number 9. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, my father Isaac, Lord, you said to me. This is great. He goes back to what God says. Always go back to what he says. Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. Verse 10. I am unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness you've shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid that he will come back and attack me. And also the mothers and the children, so his, his family. And you have said... I will surely make you prosper and make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He gets alone with God and he begins to pray. And he pours his heart out to God. But he doesn't end there. He begins to wrestle with God and wrestles with this, with, with, with this, this issue. And, and read on down in, in verse number 24. So then Jacob was alone and a man wrestled with him. The man is God. Wrestled with him until daybreak. So they wrestled all night long. And all through the night. And when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the sock of, of Jacob's hip uh, so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And the man then said, let me go for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob. Remember, deceiver. But the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, deceiver, but you'll become Israel, which means people of God. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and you have overcome. See, Jacob's life had been about deceiving to get what he wanted. The blessing, the birthright, the inheritance. But finally he goes after God and he refuses to let go until God blesses him. And God does bless him. Now again, I know I'm being a bit overly simplistic about this. But the reality is this. Is that this is one of those issues that you're not going to be able just to get zapped. You're not just going to just have a prayer and it's all over with. He prayed, then he got alone, and he wrestled all night long with this issue. A bit metaphorical for us. It's historical, but, it, but the meaning is, is this, is that there are some of these issues that we deal with relationally, behaviorally, in our lives that we have to wrestle with, that we've got to get along with God with, and, we, and we, we, we've got to explore and unpack. It's like Dan Green, Dr. Green, that you just saw on the video clip on the, on the roll-in. Uh, I mean, it's, it's about getting, sometimes you have to go to a counselor, to a therapist, to a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and sit down and go, I need someone who, who can be honest with me, who can help me understand what's going on and speak into my life. I need someone that can help me. And you better make sure it comes from a biblical basis. That's why I love Dan Green. But you've got to make sure it comes from that. But you've got to wrestle with these issues. Deal with these issues. 
Some of you may need to re-listen to this message. You may need to go back and really unpack this passage and wrestle with this. After you've wrestled with it, then you bury it. The next thing is you bury it. I know that's oversimplified, but for the sake of time and the sake of our conversation, God tells Jacob to move to Bethel and build an altar and move forward. See, what happens after he wrestles with God is Esau shows up and God has reconciled that relationship. And he tells him to move to Bethel, which means house of God, and go and build an altar there and start this fresh life. Put this behind him. Look at Genesis 35, verses 2 and 3. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, get rid of all the foreign gods that you have with you. All the idols that we've collected, everything that's happened, get rid of it. Purify yourselves. You get alone with God. You pray and you wrestle with God for yourself. And change your clothes, which is an outward expression of an inward action. It's like water baptism. And then let us go to Bethel, which means house of God. And there I will build an altar to God who's answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. We're getting rid of the past. We're starting fresh. We're starting new. So what is it that you need to bury? Is it a bad attitude? Is it jealousy with a sibling? Is it bitterness over how you've been treated? Is it pride with a spouse? Is it anger that's bullying up inside of you? What do you need to bury? Is it a bad attitude? Is it a bad habit? What addiction have you picked up on? Don't shut me down. Don't close me out. What addiction have you allowed to come in and replace the working of the Holy Spirit in your life who's there to be the comforter? What have you, ha- have you replaced him with? What, what sexual sin, when it comes to a marital relationship, have you replaced him with? What pornography have you replaced him with? What is it? It's time that you bury it. What, what bad experience do you need to bury? What hurt, what abuse, what abandonment have you felt? Listen, if you're a victim, and I'm not making light of your situation, it's because you're choosing to do that. You're allowing someone to come into your life and to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the work of the enemy. But the Bible says that Jesus has come to give you life. So if you want to be stolen and and left for dead, fine, stay with the enemy. You want to have life, then you've got to make a decision at some point that you've got to say, God, I can't do this. I've got to deal with me. I've got to deal with all the junk. I've got to put on new clothes, and I've got to move forward. I understand it's much more difficult than what I'm stating. I've already stated this is much more simplified than what it is. But it's exactly what you have to come to the point that you do. Even if it's a process. Go to God. Go to the altar. Bury it and rebury it if you have to. See, in the Old Testament, what they would do is they would take an animal, like a goat. And they would bring the goat to the priest. And the priest would take the goat. And they would project all of their sin, all their iniquity, all their hurt, all their whatever their issues, their problems, and put it onto that goat. And then the goat would go and they would put the goat on the altar. And the altar of God, the flames of the altar, would consume it. Meaning that it was taken care of. It was, it was, it was, the sins were forgiven. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat from. And that's exactly what we have to do. We have to take our junk, take our problems, take our issues, and we take them to the altar of God. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He died on the cross, which is the ultimate altar. He died not just so that we could be, have, have heaven in the sweet by and by, but that we can have life in the here and now, and we give it to him. And sometimes I hear people go, but that's not enough. It's not enough? No, I'm not saying it's easy. 
I'm not saying that it's simple, but I am saying that the reality is, is that he is enough. He's more than enough. But the question is, are you willing to trust him? Are you willing to give it? Because some of you want to carry your baggage around like carry-on luggage and just travel it wherever you go. And what you want to do is somebody to ask you, what's this that you have with you? And then you want to unpack all the hurt and all the pain. Why? It doesn't help you. And I'm not making light. I'm just saying there comes a point where I go, I'm tired of the emotional baggage. I'm tired of the mental clutter. I'm tired of, 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 of all the bandwidth that it takes, takes up. That's where Jacob was. I've made this incredible life for myself, but yet I haven't dealt with this. So I'm going to wrestle with this. And when I come to the end of it and God touches me, I'm going to bury it and I'm going to leave it. And I'm going to do what God does with my sin. I'm going to put it at the bottom of the ocean. I am refusing to pick that junk up again, and I'm going to go. And lastly, you break the cycle. Because some of you were raised in some pretty horrific homes. This is what you're trying to do is break the cycle. You don't want your kids to have to carry that on. That's exactly what happened with Jacob. Because if you come from dysfunction, many times you propitiate the same dysfunction. I want you to see this in Genesis 35, and we'll be done. Genesis 35, verse 16, 17, and 18. Then they moved on to Bethel. And while they were still some distance from Arafat, Rachel, which was the love of Jacob's life, began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you will have another son. And as she breathed her last breath, so she's dying, the love of Jacob's life is dying giving birth to this son. She named her son Benoni, but his father named him Benjamin. We read that and we just kind of go, okay, whatever. Now you got to understand, Jacob decided, I'm going to break the cycle. I'm going to break the toxic family cycle. See, Benoni means son of my sorrow. Benjamin means son of my right hand. What Rachel wanted to do was take, see, Rachel had, had waited for the love of her life and, and kind of been unfairly done by her father and waited for Jacob. And then when she married Jacob, she couldn't have any children. And then finally she had Joseph, who would be the great deliverer. And then, this is the last child, the two boys. And so her hurt and her pain, she was going to place on that child. And Jacob says, no, 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 no. I've been down this road before. I've been here before. I've been here before. I was called a deceiver my entire life. And it wasn't until I got alone with God that God changed my name from deceiver to people of God. From Jacob to Israel. No, today, this stops now. I will call him Benjamin. Benjamin means son of my right hand. The right hand in the Hebrew culture was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of favor. The Bible says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. David says that God upholds you and I in his righteous right hand. The right hand was the hand of blessing. When the Father would bless his son with the birthright and with the family blessing, he would do it with the right hand. 
When they would shake on a deal and they would seal a contract, it was with the right hand. The right hand was the hand of blessing. So what he's saying is, no, 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 no. He will not be a son of sorrow. He will not be attached to that for the rest of his life. I will break the cycle of the toxic carrying on of of this. And he will be a blessing. And he spoke that over his life. Jacob, through Joseph, the firstborn of Jacob and and Rachel, will be sold into slavery. But God will use him. He'll become number two in the nation of Egypt as a Hebrew. Historians tell us that the nation of of Israel will be down to 400 people because of the famine. And it will be when Joseph sees Benjamin, his younger brother, that he will bring him to him, reveal who he is, and begin to cry. Because he's not a son of sorrow, he's a son of blessing. Changes his entire life. He'll say to Benjamin, Benjamin, they're bringing dad. And when he gets here, we'll all be reunited. And when Jacob comes in, he'll see Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel. But he'll know the firstborn of Rachel was connected to him through whom? Through Benjamin, the hand of blessing. Wonder how that would have turned out had he not changed his name. And it will be in Jacob's old age, just like his father Isaac, that his eyes will be weak, the Bible says. And Joseph will bring his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh, in front of their their grandfather and ask him to bless their lives. And Joseph will sit Ephraim, the firstborn, and Manasseh, the secondborn, at, at Jacob's right hand and his left hand. And the Bible says that Jacob, as he begins to bless them, he crosses his hands. And Joseph says, no, Father, I've already set Ephraim at your right and Manasseh at your left, Ephraim being the oldest and Manasseh being the youngest. And Jacob says, son, I know what I'm doing. The younger will be greater than the older. The right hand, the hand of blessing will fall on the hand of Manasseh. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. I don't care where you're from or what you've done or who you are. You can break the cycle. We overcome by what? By the blood that Jesus Christ shed on the cross and by the word of our testimony. No weapon formed against us shall prosper by declaring the word of God in our life. That's simple, Pastor. I'm, I didn't write the book, I'm just telling you. But the trajectory of a life is simply changed by speaking those things. I know this is oversimplified, but I pray that today you will take this and unpack this. If you're living in a toxic family relationship, that you will deal with it. And don't point fingers. Look at yourself first. If you were raised in that and you want to break that cycle, go back into here and process through that. That's my prayer for you. This is God's word. It's here to be a light to our feet, a light to our path. It's here to help us to realize, hey, we're not the first people in history to ever deal with these problems. Thank God. And we're probably not going to be the last. But there is a way.